All right, so in John 20, starting in verse 19, we have this story. We'll read the next 10 verses. So it says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and he, st and he said to them, peace be with you. Now when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and, your, and see my hands, and put your hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay, so this is the story that we have for us this morning. And in this, this reveals this big picture that in one way or another, we are all like Thomas. In fact, there's three different ways that stand out to me from this story. And each one of them has a certain level of potency depending on where you're at and what you're walking in with today. And so the first way that I see us like Thomas is when God sovereignly excludes us from an encounter that honestly doesn't necessarily make sense in its moment. Look, think, think about this story. All the disciples encountered Jesus, but Thomas wasn't there. Thomas's initial exclusion was not an accident, and it wasn't, um, you know, just coincidence. This was part of God's plan for Thomas and even for us as the church later on. This makes Thomas incredibly relatable and actually has, an, uh, it, it creates the, um, the ingredients for there to be a story that all Christians at some point in their life can deeply relate to because of the questions he asks. And we'll get to those in a moment. But I want to focus just kind of on the setting and the context and the timing of this story before we get any further. And that is that all the disciples uh, were there except Thomas. Now, is that coincidence? No. Why? Well, likely Thomas, of all the different guys, this would have just jarred him the most. We don't know where he was. We don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was at the store. Maybe he was getting some food for everybody because they're all like locked in their hiding or something. Maybe he's off on a nap or whatever it is. But he's away, and he comes back, and of all the guys to miss Jesus, it's Thomas. Now, there might have been one of the other disciples who, if they heard from the guys, hey, Jesus was here, we saw him, maybe he'd think, sweet, I'm in. Like, I believe, like, it could have been John, you know, could have been one of the other guys that perhaps just the way their heart is, their personality, whatever it is, that that story, the testimony of their best friends would have been enough to stir within them great hope and excitement. But Thomas had a different reaction. Maybe, you're, maybe you react like this at times, and I, I have myself, where like there's this 
frustration that is there, and then you just end up saying something, or there's an anger, or a heartache, or a disappointment. And in Thomas's case, what's he say? Hey, unless I get to do all this stuff, I will never believe. I mean, there's almost this sense of like, okay, Thomas, I mean, we're just, you know, we're all celebrating here, we're all happy, and he's all frustrated, you know, again, rolling in with a bags of groceries or something. What's everyone having a party for? Why are they all happy? What's going on here? Turns out he misses out. And he's probably pretty uh, perturbed by this. There's a sense of disappointment. You know, about two weeks ago, my son, my oldest son, he's five, but he got a letter in the mail. Like, this is cool. He never gets a letter in the mail. So I showed him, you know, the letter. It's the guy's name on it. And so he's like, my name's on this. Sweet. And it's from the library. This is cool. Hey, he's got a letter from the library. This is fun. What is this? So we open it up. And I'm um, opening it up, I'm like, this is strange. I thought this was gonna be like, hey, welcome to the library or something, but it's like, the way it was made, something else is going on here. And I open it up and it's a bill because <laughs> he didn't have a, a book. It's like, if you don't return this book, you know, here's what you owe. So he's, Roman's like, what is this? I'm like, uh, welcome to life, kid. It's the mail, and the mail is mostly bills. And it was a super funny moment. So here he is all disappointed. He's like, he doesn't really know what to do with it. And I was all excited for him in that moment and just kind of see it in his eyes, like, what? I missed out. And, you know, in Thomas's case, he misses Jesus. And then he has to wait eight entire days for his questions to be answered. He enters into the crucible of patience, eight days. You know, he's probably saying these words thinking, okay, I just kind of got, I'm gonna assume he's, he's um impulsive with this statement of unless I get to touch it and see it, I'll never believe. Let's, like, I'm going that route only in light of how, how, how I'm reading it here. But he's probably thinking, hey, the next day, I'll see Jesus and we'll get this all resolved. I don't have to, you know, eat my hat. Well, then it the, goes day two and day three. You now he's probably wondering, oh, great. Here I have declared my conviction about this and now I'm waiting. And not just waiting, but I gotta wait a long time. He's probably thinking, where is Jesus? Hey, what if now, day four or five, what if I missed him? Like, I don't really know what's happening here. Again, we read this in hindsight. We read this with the outcome. But when you step in the shoes of this, in this small window of time between Jesus' resurrection and then his ascension, they don't know what's happening here. They're hiding, so their emotions are already super flared up as it goes. And uh here he's, he could be asking questions like this. Hey, what if I miss Jesus forever? You know, Jesus did tell us he had to leave, and then when he leaves, and this you know, advocate, counselor, Holy Spirit's gonna come. Like, and, and Jesus breathed that on them, but like, I missed this. And it wouldn't surprise me if there's a pretty strong disappointment emotion stirred within them, or with, within him. And then after seven days, Thomas is like, well, surely it's going to be a week later. Hey, we, now we're gathering kind of our new version of uh, worship, you know, kind of quietly. We don't want people to know what's going on. We don't want to get arrested and crucified like Jesus, although he's resurrected. Like, who knows, you know, where they're at. They're hiding in this moment. But still, then eight days, and Jesus finally appears. It took eight days for Jesus to show up and say, hey, Thomas, right? And then show him his jazz hands, right? The, and then, like, let him see it all. And that was uh, quite the game of patience that Jesus played with him. And this teaches us an important lesson because we are all there in one moment or another in which God uses this like scenario where we might miss out in a, in a spiritual way with really good things. Not because we're off like in like a prodigal season and not because we're just doing our own thing, but we're serving the Lord, chasing after the Lord, and then he does things that are mysterious within like 
some people, but not us. Or in this case, within his circle of friends, the camaraderie, the trust among them, but not Thomas. Maybe I'm reading into it like as one of several siblings. Uh, maybe I'm looking at this as somebody who's had these kinds of moments in my own life. But I would be thinking like, what gives, God? Like my heart is vexed in this moment. It's a mysterious scenario. Have you ever had a situation where you're waiting on Jesus with deep angst? Or you're feeling like a stranger among friends? Or you are replaying a missed opportunity over and over again in your head? Maybe there's a sense of regret. Maybe among your group or a group of friends, good godly friends, or among your own family, they have had a supernatural encounter with God, but you have not. When was the last time that you may have missed out? I think how we handle those moments is probably even more important than the actual scenario at hand. It's in those moments of disappointment or waiting or feeling left out or feeling like an unfair short straw was dealt our way that we really encounter God. Again, call it the, the crucible of sanctification. There's something special that occurred for Thomas that didn't happen for the others. I'm gonna get ahead of myself at the lack of... Uh, good flow here, but I just, I might forget later. I, I, I you know, I, we don't know, it's, it's conjecture, but could it be that this situation is what prepared Thomas to be the warrior for Christ that he was when he went off in the middle of Nowheresville in modern-day modern India to be a missionary for the gospel? Everyone else was kind of, well, mostly, at least in the same region, some of them all rub shoulders with one another, Peter and John and stuff, right after Pentecost and most of the book of Acts. Thomas goes like nowhere. And then he does great work for the Lord. He gets killed for his faith with a spear. And God used him in a powerful way. It could be that he actually needed this scenario, this, this moment to either fill a gap in his character to deepen who he was, to make him into the warrior for Christ that he was, that, that we know he was later in life. And I'll get to, I think I'll get to some of that in a moment. But, so here we have. When was the last time you were kind of left out and how did you respond? You know, as I think about in my own life and certain things, I, I, you know, I, don't have, I don't have 60, 70, 80 years to draw on and I know one day I can probably have like better stories for this and I could share, pass on to a church or my own kids. But even coincidentally for me, a little bit like unique nostalgia, it's April 23rd today. Well, April 30th, uh, next week, April 30th, 2013, 10 years ago, next week, was the day I was let go of my dream job, in a sense, dream job. It was like ministry version, of like you have all these like techies who wanna work for Google or Apple or something. I like my version of that by working with this church in DC that's fantastic and well-known and I was like loving it. And I was good at my job and I was cheap because I was a kid. And so I was able to just do all sorts of stuff but then they had a big layoff on the whole department and that included me. And when that happened, it was incredibly disappointing because it's like, hey, um, I'm able to do this really well, and I also like don't know what is next. Lynn and I had only been married for nine months, and so then we were like off on the adventure of what's gonna happen next. And the sense and the feeling of being left out was particularly heightened because unlike a normal job, 
Well, I shouldn't say normal, but a non-church job. You get let go from work. Nobody likes that. But then, you know, you have like maybe your friend group or your church group on Sunday. And you're, in my case, when, when you work for a church that it's also your employment, well, you come back on Sunday, you're like, hey, guys, yeah, I, uh, I no longer work here. Um, and it's kind of strange. I went from being like a coach to about 100 men's groups leaders to uh, just, you know, their, their pal. And uh, it didn't affect our friendship, but it, there is a weird sense within church and um, leaving or being fired or being let go, however it is. It's just kind of a unique dy- dynamic. So I experienced that as well at a young age, and that was no fun. But I wanted to stay in ministry, didn't know what was going to happen, and that is the incident that actually led to Lynn and I moving to the Charlottesville area, which led to this, um, my, my place within this church and this community. And so going on 10 years here of what a unique season it is for us, where in the moment you're wondering uh, anything from like, why me? Especially in this case, there's a whole department, a whole group of people, and I'm like, they're all having meetings, and I'm not. I'm like, hey, guys, looking at them through the window. They're the ones that stayed. It's like really obvious, like, who was getting let go and who wasn't. But I'm like, hey, guys, <laughs> me and the three of us are going to get lunch while you guys are in the meeting. But whether it's why us, why me, what's next, what's happening, Thomas encountered this, and it was a long eight days and we can too. How, how do you respond in those situations of waiting? And how do you wait well? I, I wanna give us a quick uh, challenge with that if you can relate to this, and then we'll move on to the other, other points here. If you're in those spots, recognize that the enemy would love to sow seeds of bitterness and discouragement, making you wanna give up, making you wanna change course, fueling lies and misconceptions. And it's so important for us to use God's word to be truth in our heart. Use it like a machete and just hack away at the lies of the enemy and allow that not to take hold in your life. And also, so not only do you wanna attack the enemy's lies with truth, but you also wanna fill your mind and your heart with the, with the, with the basics of the faith. You know, staying entrenched in God's word, like allowing it to saturate your mind and your heart. Staying solid and, and consistent in prayer, uh, in corporate worship, incorporating things like silence and solitude and fasting as needed, and really just staying on the front edge of um, spiritual diligence and not allowing that to be a moment where you, you, where you pull back. And then also for some of us, this would probably be important to remember too, and that is, say you do have this like sense of uh, rejection and it doesn't make sense. Maybe, maybe, and I've seen this before too with like mission trips where you might have a group of people that go, you were supposed to go on the trip, but then something happened out of your control. It wasn't due to a lack of desire or anything or even obedience, but something happened and you had it. You couldn't go. You were sick or somebody else was sick. You had to take care of. So then the, this whole group comes back and they're all like filled with all these great stories and you're like, oh, that kind of I mean, I'm happy for you. I'm really happy God worked, but it kind of stinks. I missed it. I was supposed to be there. What are you supposed to do with that? Well, you know, in those moments, whether, whether it's a mission trip or something even bigger, let us remember to find our worth and our significance and our acceptance in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and not just like who we are. Because a lot of things, you know, um, 
culturally will just say, just look in the mirror, tell yourself that you're a winner, and go get it again. And it's like, okay, well, that's just like a form of self-help. And it doesn't mean you can't employ some of that, but root your heart, and, and especially as a Christ follower, root it in Christ and what he's done for you. So again, just don't let the enemy take hold and practice the spiritual disciplines and also find your worth in Christ and not just, not just yourself. And uh, yeah, so okay, so we have Thomas. Here he is, he's waiting. Now, now this leads to the next part of this story here. Eight days later, Jesus shows up, peace be with you, right? They're in a locked room. Second time it mentions this locked room dynamic, which gives a whole nother like kind of uh, support with what does the resurrected glorified body kind of look like one day for us and everything like that. But in this moment, here you have Thomas. He is the one that wants proof that Jesus is alive. And remember, this is not some random dude in the story. So if you're wondering, like, hey, who's this dude that wants proof? He walked with Jesus. He knew Jesus. He, he was used by God in powerful ways, assuming he, along with the disciples, were part of the 72 who were sent out during Jesus' ministry. If you recall, there's this one story where Jesus sends out 72. They come back. They're all celebrating. And Jesus says, it was like I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, or Satan fall like lightning falls from heaven. And so they experienced wonderful ways of uh, encountering God and experiencing God working through them. And this is the guy who's doubting. I mean, it's one thing if you doubt, one thing if I doubt. This is Thomas who's doubting the testimony of his best friend sitting around there hearing what was going to happen. And he is the one asking for more proof. Friends, if he asks for proof, then, then it's understandable and it's relatable that we do as well. Well, what proof is there? regarding the resurrection of Christ. You know, I've had some people say, hey, Adam, listen, it works for you that you're a follower of Christ. Like, I'm really happy for you. Um, your life is different now. I'm glad you have peace. I'm glad you have hope. But just what proof do you have of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? It's like, well, I'm glad you asked. There's a lot of proof. There's a lot of examples. There's a lot of evidence that we look to and we lean on and that we remember. You know, maybe you're asking the same question or you have friends or family who do too. And they usually start with saying, you know, is, is this just a good Bible story? Is this just legend or a fable, or is this truth? What evidence do you have? So let me talk through a couple of evidences from this story, and there are dozens uh, that I think are solid, but I'll just draw our attention to a few. One is that this, uh, this story, the, the declaration, the, the statement, the proof of Jesus' resurrection is recorded in God's Word. So that is the first one. So it's, it's not just like an oral legend that was passed on. Like, yeah, it's not in the Bible, but we all, you know, just God's people kind of know it. They just, they just, they've just always believed it. No, it's, it's, it's in Scripture. It's in all four gospel accounts. It's consistent among its account. You don't have one account that says uh, he resurrected, and then another one says, like, we don't really know what happened to him, and then one that says, no, he didn't. None of that. They're all saying the same thing. They're all emphasizing in the same account, uh, and then it's across uh, the rest of the New Testament, over and over again, every reference to Jesus' resurrection, they're all affirming that. Again, it's not just, yeah, I don't actually don't know what happened, or 100 years later, when like John's last writing in Revelation, the last one to be written, he didn't say, by the way, we actually don't really know, but we're just hoping. None of that. And that's important for us, because God's Word is full of stories, the ups and downs, and the mistakes of people, the I, the Old Testament particularly, but definitely the New, um, with, with Peter's betrayal and other situations, that these writers were not 
scared to include things that were embarrassing or to include things that uh, didn't make them look good or anything like that. A lot of the Old Testament has all sorts of awful stories. We're like, you should be in jail. What's going on there? And yet, God's people committed these moments at times. And so, they included it in here. Now, one of the passages that describe this is uh, Acts 1, 2 to 3. It says, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented, this is Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. All right, so Jesus resurrected. He's spending time with them. This is recorded in God's word. It's not just like he showed up like possibly once or some loose kind of a dream. No, this is consistent. This has happened. Now, this is in God's word, and that's important for us to remember. This is the starting point, that God's word is true. God's word is free from error. God's word is completely authoritative in our lives. Men and women have died over the years to preserve God's word and to translate God's word for other people groups, including us, who don't speak the original languages. And so it is in God's word for us. And and that's a starting place that is so important for us as we recognize the, um, the source material for our belief in the resurrection. Again, it's not coming from just like a philosopher or a professor or some sort of coach or a podcaster or other, another religious leader or our own personal opinion. You know, I just, I just feel like he resurrected. It just, just makes me feel good inside, and I just, I just know. It's like, no, okay, it's, it's God's word that says it. This is, this is where we start. So that's the first, that's the first one. Uh, secondly, there, another evidence for his resurrected body is the marks on Jesus' resurrected body. So I take this literally from the story. He's showing the marks on his body. There was physical evidence that could be seen and could be touched by the disciples and everyone else who saw Jesus. So what we know is that the one standing before the disciples wasn't a random dude. It was Jesus. These were not marks that were faked. This wasn't stage makeup. This wasn't some other person. This wasn't like a twin or any of this nonsense. It was a person. It was Jesus Christ who was killed, and he was standing before them and showing them. So the marks on his body show this. Now, I want to give a quick aside just to challenge us with this. Since Jesus bore scars for us, what scars do we bear for him? Or is our life so incubated from any sort of like uh, pain, physical, emotional, whatever it might be, for like from a persecution standpoint, that we can't even bear any marks? And when I get to heaven, I want to be able to stand among all the other saints and say, like, here's different battle wounds. Not like I'm trying to get them, but just as they happen, so be it. Say, yeah, yeah, this, I, got, I got some gray hair and bags under my eyes way earlier than I should have because of not only uh, all these kids up at all night, all the time, but also uh, with the church starting. You should see the pictures of what I looked like before we started the church and after. Whew. I still don't know. If it's just the 30s, the children, or the church. Put them all together, it's a, it's a hot mess. So here you have the, the marks on Jesus' body. Again, um, as opposed to just the disciples recording, you know, he's not in the grave, but we saw him, and he, uh, he was 
He was perfect. I don't, I, don't, I don't really know what a good alternative would be, but what we know is that Jesus did show these marks and he had these. All right, so a third evidence of his resurrection would be the reaction of the other side, put it that way, the centurion and the authorities specifically. And so in Matthew 28, it says this in verse 11, starting in 11. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Right, nothing could take Jesus' body except an act of God. A ragtag group of fishermen and an IRS agent aren't going to take down the Roman centurion who was guarding the tomb. It just wasn't going to happen. But Jesus' body was missing, and the best solution they could come up with was a lie about what had happened. Right? No change, whether it's today or back then, the government came up with lies to cover the situation. It still happens. And so here you have their reaction about the truth confirms in many ways what actually did happen. Because they could have easily just said, nope, the body's still here, losers. Or they could have said, like, um, I don't know, they could have come up with anything. So they're like, we don't know what happened to the body. Okay, well, let's just come up with this, come up with this fake scenario to try to cover ourselves because people are going to ask about it. So the very reaction helps us to see another side. So there you have three just from this story. There are other uh, good supports that we could get into. I'm not going to right now, but what I am going to do is provide some of these to our group leaders during the week. And if you are not a group leader, but you are interested in some of the content that will be discussed in groups for those who want to talk through it, uh, let um, our team know at the Welcome Center. You can sign up and we'll, we'll try to get that to you, forward that over to you. And so there, there's these. Um, and also, if you want to do any quick self-study during the week, one book to look at is the book, The Case for Christ. I found that to be really solid. And then another one would be Evidence That Demands the Verdict. And that one is good, too, especially regarding the validity of the Word of God as a uh, premier source for historical writings and why we can trust it even better than all these other materials that we trust and talk about, especially in academia. And then also, if you're really interested, you could join, uh, if you're a dude, join the men's group on Saturday morning. They're, they're going through apologetics with Dan. Um, the signups are on the table outside. So that's a few different ways for you to learn more. The, the question, like the per per personal um, element, though, I want to draw your attention to is that with any specific doubt you may have, in Thomas's case, he's like, I just want to see it with my eyes because uh, you guys all got to what gives. I want to be here too. I want to see this. Well, when it comes to doubt that we may have, often our need for evidence on a particular issue stems from a personality thing or an experience that we have that would stir that within us. Because think about it. There's like a hundred solid uh, supports one way or another. And I've had the luxury of being able to study them all and like experience a lot of them and all. But when it comes to why people have 
the questions or the doubts that they have with God, it tends to be birthed from an experience or a personal encounter in one way or another. For, for instance, those who have experienced a personal tragedy, I mean, just, just kind of like some of the worst of the worst. This could be the, the death of a child or a baby or a spouse. I mean, things that just like are out of the norm and, and stir the sense of like, unfairness and, and deep mourning and grief. Those, those individuals or couples tend to have a certain uh, filter on their heart when it comes to, is, is Jesus legit? Because it's hard to think he is because of what I'm going through, right? So like that's one example. Sometimes you have people who have been on, uh, awfully abused by churches or church leaders specifically, L- literally forms of criminal abuse to just um, maybe lighter, lighter versions of it, like being burned one way or another. And that can stir distrust. That can make you wonder, like, is Jesus actually resurrected because of the experience I had growing up in a church? And you know, that's, that's a, an understandable one. one. One is an area of philosophy for, for those who have been who just are like academically, intellectually minded. Just, they love studying and reading. They might have read a lot of people who have um, deeply entrenched humanistic points of view that can be toxic to the soul and the mind. Things that just make man the center of the world and not Christ, and it can, it can eat away. And if you've studied that for any length of time, not in a way, because I've like looked into so much of this, big part of my own, like, um, academic journey, but all of it is still confined within healthy boundaries. But if you betray those boundaries and just dive in in a certain way with the wrong mentors, it can really like mess with your mind and heart. And so you may come to scripture with different doubts or questions because of that background. Uh, You can have those who have experienced um, acts of war in which you have personally been a, like a soldier on the ground or uh, yeah, you, could, you could be related. A lot of you are military families and so you know certain stories, but I'm particularly thinking of those where you saw the stuff with your own eyes, your own friends, your own family members. And um, you, you have a particular um, wound in your heart when it comes to Jesus saying words like this, peace be with you. And you're like, I can't even read the word peace. This, this story particularly, because he literally talks about um, seeing with his own eyes. You're like, I can't even believe, uh, I, I, to, to see with my own eyes in light of what my eyes have seen. Like, that no man or woman should see or experience. Uh, I, I could go on and on. But my, my point is we, we all bring something to the table that informs our doubt. And so my question for you is just think through what is it that you may have like a doubt before the Lord and what is the cause there? Uh, another one I just can't deny, like can't not say it. It would be related to your, your upbringing and your family regarding your parents, a father or mother or other uh, person who was supposed to like lead you and look out for you, but they didn't. And 
that has like tragically informed your understanding of a, a loving heavenly father. And so whatever it may be, we all bring uh, to the table certain doubts. So what is it for you? I wanna encourage you with this, that wherever you're at, whatever one of these, and I even have others, maybe I'll include them with the group discussion this week, you're not the only one who's there. And there are people in our church who have been there, literally there or worse. There are people who, um, even if they're not in our own church family, they would be within like the area here that I could introduce you if you're interested. And then even if they weren't, you, you have people um, throughout history who have been fascinating, deep, thoughtful writers who have worked through this. I specifically think of like Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis, who though they saw, if I, I think I'm getting my details right here, if the, uh, the, though they saw the, the atrocities of World War I, they were able to work through the theological understanding of a biblical worldview on the problem of evil and not get sucked into what would be so common for those who did see those things with their own eyes. Okay, so we all have doubts in one way or another that we bring to the table that God addresses. Now, the third observation here with this, the third way we're kind of like Thomas is our belief. At least the third way I would like us to be like Thomas is with belief. And this is how we will we'll, we'll wrap up as we talk through this. Jesus showed him his scars, and then Thomas responded with belief. And not just any belief, but belief with passion. Because as I mentioned, this is the guy that went on to do a great missionary work uh, pretty soon after all this encounter. So my question for you is, how about you? What is your response to Jesus as revealed in the word of God and testified to by the church? Like the, you know, it, this, this sense of belief is not just um, looking at the looking at a pile of evidence and then believing, because it's just not a quick verse for you on this. Matthew 28 says, now the 11 disciples, they went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That phrase, some doubted, is such a helpful portrayal for us because it reminds us that even people who saw Jesus had all sorts of, like some of them were doubting. I'm thinking, if, they themselves saw Jesus, but they still doubted. So, so for us today, maybe you're thinking, hey, listen, if I just saw Jesus like Thomas did, then I would believe. Well, that's not necessarily true. There were people who saw and didn't believe. And so for us, there might be a pile of evidence. So let us remember when it comes to our doubts and when it comes to our belief and when it comes to our faith, it begins with the posture of our heart, not necessarily the amount or the extent or the perfection of a evidence argument. It begins with the posture of our heart and being one to say, no, I, I genuinely am seeking the truth. And everyone I know who has genuinely sought the truth, actually, this is the whole like, premise of the case for Christ and how this book begins. And like, I, I, I genuinely am just like, seeking the truth. And what you learn is that the truth is not just like um, a concept, but it's a person, and it's Jesus Christ. And he meets us there, again, with his word and then affirmed through all these other, all these other means. And so in those moments, let me challenge you uh, w w with your response, are, are you in a state where you are resisting the Holy Spirit? That's the language that scripture uses. A couple weeks ago, I used the, the phrase quenching, but you know, like it's really like resisting. Are you resisting the prompting of the Spirit? Uh, do you deny 
Um, what, what is the reason for this? And you might say, I just wish I had this evidence or I have this personal tragedy in my past. I can't get over whatever it may be that may be stirring doubt. Let me help you recognize that it begins with your heart posture, which is actually a place of pride and arrogance. And part, that's part of mankind's fall. We, we come at a place where we need the Holy Spirit to make it clear to us our desperate need for God. And without that, we go on the track that most people do, which is a form of self-salvation, where they either got to be good enough before God, or they got to work good enough for God, or they're going to follow some sort of um, religious thing that says if you just do these things good enough, then you'll appease God. And you have to recognize that there's nothing you can do to atone and make yourself right before a holy God. Self-salvation does not work. It's one of the great pitfalls of mankind, and it makes perfect sense that Satan would create some like illusion of self-salvation because he loves himself in the center of the story and keeping himself um, there. And uh, so we've got to recognize that with Christianity, that is the faith, the only faith, the only legitimate faith at least that's like not some random even the random ones, I, like random weird groups that just are like five people in a hole. But even, even beyond those, uh, Christianity is the only faith system. It's the only belief system that takes the focus off of ourselves and puts it on somebody else who has satisfied our need for God. All the center and all the glory goes on Jesus Christ. He is the true hero, not ourselves. And and uh, let me just remind us of this. When it comes to our faith, when it comes to response, when it comes to faith, especially in the conversation of doubt or evidence, having faith in someone we haven't seen is not lunacy. First of all, we do this all the time with all these history books. You believe all these things that you read, um, even though you've never seen people. But beyond that, when it comes to our faith in Christ, it's not lunacy, it's conviction. We have staked our entire eternity on the belief that Jesus is atonement enough to satisfy our eternal debt before a holy God. That's a, that's a pretty, big, pretty big claim for us to dive into. And it's a belief that Jesus and his work on the cross carries more potency and validity than anything that we can do. Like we can see our hands and we can work with them to be a good person or something. And yet you're saying, even though I could work my whole life to try to like be the best I can be, I'm still gonna, like, I, I'm not trusting that. And maybe that just means something more to me as, as like a man and, and what we can do, what we can build, what we can fight for and saying, I cannot even fight for my own soul. I need Jesus Christ to do that. So I'm gonna yeah, I'll be faithful, a good steward, and responsible, you know, with the work of my hands. But I'm not going to earn my salvation. I'm going to trust that somebody else did it for me. That's, that's a, a gutsy conviction. That's belief and faith. Oh, and that can be very hard to do, even though Jesus has paid it all. And so, friends, in which way are you like Thomas? You know, maybe all of these in one way or another um, is really resonating with you. But for some of us, we're like feeling hard that whole idea of missing out on an encounter with God. And you're kind of like wondering what, you know, what's going on here. Maybe you're wanting proof and, and, and working through doubt for various reasons. It could be something you've just always kind of lingered and wondered on. It could be also 
uh, something that, uh, that occurs. And let me just quickly say this. What I've learned is like some of you are, you're so strong in your faith and you're doing great. And all it could take is like one totally unexpected tragedy tomorrow for you to wonder like, is all this thing a sham? And so part of my passion for you as a pastor is to help dig that anchor so deep that, that, that those things won't make they won't derail your faith, but they'll help you to see how they fit within the, the work of God as a whole in your life and how he has worked in history and how it fits in, how, how you can reconcile the mystery and the pain. So, so that's one dynamic too. And then the last one there's just with belief and how you know, our response, it should, it should fuel a passion for the things of God and the kingdom of God, similar to Thomas. And it would seem to some degree, it's a little bit, it's a little dramatic to say this, but that the, the deeper our crucible of doubt is, like perhaps this, the stronger we are and the more um, powerful we are in the kingdom. Because as you look at a lot of people whose biographies they're written about, they went through some stuff, and <laughs> it's wild to see what God took them through to get them where they got later in life. All right, so, uh, Maddie, would you lead us in a, in a final song here and allow us to take this to the Lord? In whatever way he might be stirring in you, I encourage you to pray through it, think on it, re-listen to this during the week if you need to, and allow yourself to, uh, to really soak in this story. Let's